After the sermon, we will sing in response, Hymn 83, stanzas 1 and 2. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in our text this morning, we have what looks like a seriously damaging setback to the church in Jerusalem. If we'd have, if we'd started at Acts chapter 1 and, and paid attention to the trajectory of, of the church in Jerusalem so far, we would have seen a wonderful progress for the believers in that city. Everything was going so well up to this point. The church seemed to have this constant explosion of growth. We, were, we would be reading about all of this beautiful fellowship that the believers there enjoyed together, the love that existed in the church, and the very shining reputation that the church had in that city. Christ was certainly being exalted through the church in Jerusalem. There was this seemingly unstoppable growing community of the followers of Jesus Christ. It was very well with the church. And then we come to our text here, and it looks like suddenly everything changes. Stephen's execution appears to mark the point where everything falls apart. There's suddenly a, a gigantic escalation of opposition that seems to break the church. And you can see this opposition gradually increasing over the period of, of the last number of chapters. In chapter 4, there was simply a warning given to the apostles that were preaching the name of Christ. They were forbidden. You better not preach in his name anymore. And the next chapter, in chapter 5, there was a similar warning, but then it was accompanied by a very violent whipping. And then chapter 7, Stephen is murdered. It's the first act of martyrdom in the New Testament church. And now here in chapter 8, there is full-scale persecution. And so the church scatters. As we read in chapter 3 of the text, or sorry, in chapter 1 of the text. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Saul began to ravage the church. The church is being destroyed here. It is not well with the church, it appears. But the question is whether the church is being ravaged. Is the church being destroyed? Well, the answer is no, it's not. We have to see that somehow the church is blessed by the Lord through this violence that evil men are doing against her. Now, how is that possible? Well, if we move through the text, we can try to gain an understanding about what God is doing here. What are the Lord's purposes in all of this? So in verse 3, we read that Saul was ravaging the church. We have to try to understand what that means. 
There are a lot of ways that you could translate the word for, for ravage here. Word for word, it would say something like we have in, uh, in our translation here. Saul was ravaging the church, or Saul was destroying the church. It, it, it describes a sort of process that is happening. But there are actually a number of ways that you can, that you can uh, translate this particular type of verb that's here for destroy. This tense is also used for when you begin to do something. So you could translate it, Saul began to destroy the church. There are a number of translations that do it that way. But you could also translate it as uh, Saul tried or was attempting to destroy the church, or Saul was attempting to ravage the church. And if we truly understand what is going on here, then that would actually be a more theologically precise way to translate this. Saul was trying to ravage the church. We know that the church cannot be destroyed or set back. Christ's church gathering work does not get derailed. The Lord's plans are not frustrated by the deeds of wicked men. In Matthew 16, verse 18, right after Peter confesses the Christ, Jesus says, you are Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. It's impossible. And we can see in The following chapters in Acts, when we pay attention to this narrative, we can see very clearly that the church in Jerusalem, those who love Jesus Christ, this church did not just crumble and fall apart. They continued to live as the church. They continued to defy the opposition. They didn't lose heart. In verse 2, we read there that devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over them. And that's a very serious thing. According to custom, if somebody was stoned to death, you could give them a burial. You were permitted to do that, but you may not mourn this person. If somebody was judged to deserve an execution by stoning, well then, this man must be very evil. And he must not be worthy of sorrow. He had to die. We had to be rid of him. If you mourn him deeply after he undergoes an execution like this, then you would be showing that you consider it a tragedy that he died. And this, this would be a great act of defiance for those who, who judged this man and who executed him by this act of stoning. So to mourn him deeply, to make a loud lamentation over him, this is to perform a public act of protest for his execution. So yes, in the very first reading, if we have to do a quick reading of this passage, then yes, our initial response to this is yes, it seems very, very bad for the church in Jerusalem, but we're getting a little bit of a different picture now. In verse 1, we read there that this persecution arose. And it says there in the second half of verse 1, 
that they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And we have to understand that sometimes when, when Luke writes all, he doesn't mean every single person to the very last soul. And this is something that we also do in, in our own speech. So there's an example of this in Luke chapter 9, verse 35. I'll read just a little portion there. We read, as Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. And then we read there, all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Now, this wouldn't be interpreted as every single person to the very last soul joined the church and was converted. It's quite possible and very likely that there was at least one person who, who, uh, who didn't turn to the Lord. This is a figure of speech. It's something that we do all the time, too. We might say something like, you know, such and such happened, and everyone in the room gasped. Everyone was surprised. Now, that doesn't mean every single person, but it means pretty much everyone. As a collective, the group did a certain thing. So likewise, in our passage and then in, in, in later chapters, we can see very clearly that not every single person left Jerusalem. The church as a whole is scattered, but it doesn't disappear. It doesn't leave the scene. The church in Jerusalem remains the apostles all stay there to keep on preaching, but almost all, almost everyone had to flee into Judea and Samaria. But the church remains there. We can see that despite the persecution, the church is alive and well in Jerusalem um, after Saul's conversion. So this would be in a couple of chapters. Uh, Paul now returns to Jerusalem, and after lots of persuasion, he's finally welcomed there. By whom? Well, he's welcomed there by the church, by the believers there. And then we see later on in Acts chapter 15, there's, there's a synod of sorts. The Jerusalem council, it convenes in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem is not destroyed. but most are forced to flee. We have to understand that that act of fleeing is a display of complete devotion to God. It's a display of love for Jesus Christ. These are people who were willing to suffer enormously for the sake of his name. They were willing to leave behind their homes, to leave behind their livelihood, to hit pause or even stop on the life that they had before. They could have chosen what would have been much easier, renouncing their new commitment to the way of Jesus Christ, renounce it and be able to just keep on with life as it was before. What would this sort of upheaval mean for your family, 
you know, yanking your kids away from their friends, their acquaintances, away from all the routines that they need. You would be leaving very important relationships. You would be willing to live, really, in a state of great uncertainty. Because who knows how long you're going to have to be in this new place, wherever you're settling. And so we're actually seeing two very different responses to this persecution. Very opposite responses. Some are staying, some remain, they hold their ground against the persecutors, they openly defy the opposition to the church, they show themselves willing to be imprisoned, and others choose to leave the city. And both groups are doing this out of pure love and devotion for Jesus Christ. And we have to see this as very instructive for us as well. It's very easy for us to rush into judgment over others who perhaps aren't reacting to a particular hardship in precisely the same way that we would. We think of all of the different responses to the hardships that we experience right now. This is quite a divisive topic. How do we respond to the kinds of restrictions on worship services that we are experiencing right now? Is there more than one godly way to respond to this? Well, surely there is. We should never assume that since someone's response is just different than our own, that they must therefore be less devoted to the Lord than we are. We can't rush into that kind of judgment. We should hold each other in very high esteem because of who we are, because of what we profess to be, followers of Jesus Christ, people who are devoted to loving him, obeying him, serving him. That doesn't mean that we that there's no room for admonishment when we are acting uh, in an unfaithful way. We are called to admonish one another, but we should do this with the greatest of care, and it's something that should never be rushed into. So now, the question is, how does all of this, what's going on here, how does this refine the church? After all, that's the point of the sermon here. We have sort of the same theme for this morning service and for this afternoon that God is using persecution to advance the gospel. And here we're seeing how God uses persecution to refine the church. How is the church refined through this? So far, what we've seen, you could maybe describe as mere survival. The church isn't destroyed. But how are God's people refined through this? How can we make the leap to saying that this persecution is a great blessing for the church? It seems very unlikely, doesn't it? Well, God says quite a bit to us in his word about how to view hardship. We know, we know for a fact that our God is the Lord, that he is omnipotent. We know that he governs all things by his providence. 
There is nothing outside his providence. And so we must know, we must confess that persecutions, even persecutions against his church, are also governed by his providence too. And we also know that God is doing all things. He's doing all things, not just some things. God is doing all things, not only for the glory of his own name, but also for the good of his children. For everyone who belongs to him, this is a foundational belief that we have. It's absolutely critical that this belief, this confession is what allows us to interpret events in a certain way. Romans 8 verse 28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. We know that in all things, not some things, not most things, all things, even a persecution, even a very long period of great hardship for the church. This is a comfort that we must cling to. One of our readings was Hebrews 12. And there we're taught, you know, how we are to view the hardship that our Heavenly Father is pleased to bring into our lives. Chapter 12, verse 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? If, if you are not disciplined, if you don't undergo discipline, then you are an illegitimate child. You are not loved by your father. In this passage, there are a lot of references to our heavenly father's rebukes, a kind of discipline that is in reaction to misdeeds, to sin. But this isn't the only form of discipline. We have to think of discipline like it's very closely related word, discipleship. Discipline isn't only about punishment. Sometimes I think that's the way we generally view something like church discipline. It's always in reaction to a misdeed. It's in reaction to sin. But discipline is much more holistic than that. Discipline is about teaching, instruction in every way. It's being strengthened and taught by God. It's, it's being refined through hardships. When you are tested, you are refined. You are perfected. This is actually something we read in the very beginning of Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12, verse 2, so 1 and 2, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, and now listen to this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is the perfecter of our faith. He perfects us through this discipline, through this hardship. This is the, the thing we sang about in Psalm 119, verse 20, stanza 27. How good it was for me to suffer pain, that in all your ways, you, or in all your statutes, you might school me. This is a loving, fatherly instruction. And 
we would do well to remember that this is exactly what James writes in at the very beginning of his letter, James 1 verse 2, after his greeting, this is the very first thing that he writes. Consider it pure joy when you come into trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete or perfect, not lacking anything. That's the first thing he writes in his letter. Who is James? Who is writing that? Well, James was an apostle who went through this persecution. He was here. He was here. He went through it all. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But also, he's writing as someone who has gone through this. He has led people through this. And he has seen what the Lord does for the church through hardships like this. These are the people of God that he loves very dearly. These people have God as a teaching and perfecting father. Their faith is being refined through this discipline of love. They're being brought up and taught by an all-knowing heavenly father. The same heavenly father who gives us trials and hardships for our own refinement. If we're able to reflect on that, on that truth, on that fact, in the middle of our hardships, that, wow, this is a very sharp and, and painful thing, to be going through, God must be doing something amazing with this, whatever it is. We can't see it right now, but for it to be this painful and this excruciating, God must be refining and perfecting us in, in just amazing ways. What a beautiful thing to, to know. If we can rest on that, And especially if it's a persecution. If you are persecuted because you profess the name of Christ, well then this is proof that you are with Christ. If you're persecuted for your faith, then you know that the persecutors aren't against you because of you, because you're so very important. No, it's because they're against Christ. And if they're against Christ, then... They hate you because you're connected to him. What an honor. What an honor to be associated with Jesus Christ. This is sharing in his sufferings like he calls us to do. And yes, if it's not persecution, if it's some other hardship like sickness or loneliness, something that so many of us are 
experiencing right now. If you've experienced an awful betrayal in your life or poverty or any kind of hardship, these things are teaching us. They are in some way purifying us from living in some way apart from God. These things teach us. Once again, they remind us to trust in him only. And the way that God carries us through, he displays his love and his care. They teach us to trust him more and more. You are able to trust that the challenge that God gave you is for your refinement. It is for the perfection of your faith. Your health troubles, how much are you reminded that you are helpless on your own, that, that our lives are but a breath? Our lives are secure in the Lord, our eternal lives. If we're persecuted, we trust in the Lord that God will carry us through and he will strengthen us and, and he will show himself in all his love and his power. Our faith will be refined. If you're sad, if you are lonely, if you are depressed, if your heart is broken by some great loss, ask your father to comfort you. And he will comfort you and he will give you his peace and his joy. That's what Jesus Christ obtained for you. So that even in the worst conditions of your life, you are reminded that you are not your own, but you belong in body and soul, in life and in death, to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And you can say in your sadness and your trouble, it is well with your soul. We can say this because of the sacrifice of Christ. This is a very well-known hymn. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. We know that in all circumstances, it is well with the church. It is well with our souls. Amen.